This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Madhumita Santanam. We want to remind you that this program broadcasts from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. Tonight, we bring you an important presentation on policy and gun violence from Emily de Angelis, a fourth-generation New Mexican who is a member of Moms Demand Action New Mexico, which highlights the importance of public safety measures and gun laws. This presentation on gun violence and policy was originally presented to the 2022 Leaders for Change Fellows virtually. In addition to that, we bring you our weekly vaccine equity and COVID info segment, and as always, we have great music that we have selected for you. Powerful songs on gun violence and safety. Our first song is Guns Down by Flaw J, a rapper who appeared on The Rap Game and America's Got Talent. She dedicates this song to the many victims of gun violence. If he would have put that gun down, gun down yeah. then he would have been here right now. right now. And if he would have put that gun down, gun down. then she would have been here right now. Right, right now. If he would have put that gun down, gun down. then they would have been here right now. Yeah. If he would have put that gun down, yeah. everybody put your guns down. How can we keep our community safe from gun violence? Emily DeAngelis from Moms Demand Action answers these questions and shares her knowledge on gun violence and its detrimental impacts on New Mexico in a presentation to the 2022 Leaders for Change Fellows. This fellowship is a group of 30 members of youth between the ages 14 to 24 who represent communities and pueblos from across New Mexico. Now, Leaders for Change Fellow and GJ member, Adriana Cordova, will introduce Emily de Angelis and Moms Demand Action. Uh, my name is Adriana Cordova, but I go by Adi. I'm with Generation Justice today, and I have been with Generation Justice for about five or six years. Um, and I'm very excited that you're here with us, and I'm very excited to hear what um, you have to share with us today. Emily De Angelis is a fourth generation New Mexican born in Albuquerque. She studied art history at St. Mary's College of Notre Dame and spent 18 years working at taught nonprofit organizations in Chicago. Her consulting practice now serves nonprofit clients locally and nationally, and um, she is a member of the grassroots movement Moms Demand Action. Yeah, that's exactly right. Thank you so much for that introduction. It's really kind of you. So as Adi so beautifully um, stated, I, you know, I'm here today because of my work with Moms Demand Action. I led the state chapter, the New Mexico chapter of that from 2017 to 2021, so four years. And that is an all volunteer role. And it manages about 20 advocate leaders across the state to organize several thousand volunteers and advocates. And we did two primary things, lots of other things, but two primarily. First, electing gun sense candidates. Gun sense is sort of the shorthand that Moms Demand Action uses for um, elected officials, for candidates who uh, align with us on our priorities of, of, of gun reform. And then the other thing that we most importantly did was pass better gun laws for the state of New Mexico to save lives. 
Um, it is always a team effort. Uh, I was honored to be their leader for the four years that I was there and uh, still am honored to be a volunteer with Moms Demand Action. So I led the chapter for four years. Uh, we helped elect more than a dozen candidates who are on our side, gun sense candidates to the House and several in the Senate between 2018 and 2019 were the really critical election years for us. And um, we passed the universal background check law at the state level in 2018 something called the Domestic Violence Relinquishment Law in 2018, which was a bill that was actually authored by a group called New Mexicans to Prevent Gun Violence up in Santa Fe. We supported them in that. And we um, were also the authors and passed the Red Flag ERPO Law, ERPO, in 2019. And I'll tell you a little bit more about what those are. Um, in 2021, I decided to run for city council. And there's a there's a sort of a policy at Moms Demand Action that you can't be running and run moms because it is too much work. Um, and But I ran on a violence intervention and prevention platform. It was a very crowded race. There were six candidates. I was one of five Democrats who ran that year um, for that seat. I came in third, didn't win. But um, I think it allowed me to bring violence intervention and prevention programs to more of the forefront in the city and became much more of a conversation that people could have um, because a lot of citizens don't know about them. Uh, I'm a mom to a 12 year old son. I chair the public art board for the city of Albuquerque. And then um, as Adi talked about, my professional life is in the arts. I'm an arts nonprofit consultant and that's something that I do full time. What brought me to the gun violence prevention movement personally was a lot having to do with my son. I uh, lived in Chicago for 20 years. I was born and raised here in Albuquerque, but I went there after college. And three months after my son was born, I returned from my maternity leave to my job, which was at a school. I was at a private school raising scholarship money for a scholarship program. We just started lockdown drills. And um, I found myself on the floor of my boss's office in the middle of a drill the first I'd ever been in. And I realized that the four-year-old kids down the hall were doing the same drill. I realized that my son at home in his crib was going to do that drill if I took him to pre-K at the age of three. And I literally was laying on the floor thinking about all the people in Congress who had the NRA in their pockets who weren't doing a damn thing about it. And that is when I decided I was going to try to find space in my life to work on it. Um, my job in Chicago was really intense. I didn't have a lot of time. I was a new mom. Um, and then there was a shooting down the street for me. Um, and the, the headlines that you hear about Chicago is that that happens everywhere all the time. It unfortunately doesn't happen everywhere all the time in the sense that the white privileged people like myself distance themselves from the neighborhoods where there are chronic shootings and they pretend it's not their problem. And I decided that if there was a shooting down the street for me, that I was gonna learn the story of what happened and I was going to start to find space to work on it. And then I chose to move back home here to Albuquerque and got involved with Moms More and they asked me to run it. And Trump had just gotten elected, so I said yes. <laughs> so um, that's how I got involved in the movement. Probably the most important thing I can teach you today about gun violence is this pyramid. And we're gonna spend a little time on it. Um, when people talk about gun violence, it is a very overwhelming topic. It takes many different forms and um, people, especially when they debate it, whether it's in person or on social media or wherever it's being debated, they tend to conflate all these different types of gun violence and all of them have different root causes. 
Um, so the debate isn't terribly useful and it really helps to have a framework of understanding for these different types of gun violence so that you can not only understand it and make it less overwhelming, but you can get start to get to some of the solutions because a lot of the solutions live in understanding the root causes and how arming those root causes makes them so deadly in the United States. So that number over there on the left, the 45,000 number, that is the total number of gun deaths tracked by the CDC in the United States in 2019. The number has been going up, but it's always been alarmingly high. I think when I first started working on gun violence prevention, it was right around 32,000. The important thing to keep in mind with this number is that it's just the number of deaths. So we know that at least two times that number in addition were also shot and survived. And I would say it's probably closer to four to five times. So we're talking about conservatively 135,000 people in a single year being shot in the United States. We'll start at the bottom and work our way up this pyramid. So suicide is 60% of the, the death toll of gun violence in a given year. So that's two thirds. That has been true for at least a decade, probably longer, if we go back and look at the data. Um, the NRA folks would tell you that this is not part of the problem, right? That this is not a group of people we need to be concerned about because if people want to end their lives, they're going to. Well, guns are so lethal that they are by far and away the most deadly way to try to die by suicide. And the vast majority of people who try other methods live and go on to get help. So we consider this to be very much a part of the purview of solving gun violence in America. The next most common form of gun violence in the United States is domestic and family violence, where guns are involved, either homicide directly or threatening or um, injuring. It's about 20% of the problem. And so if you took just those two bottom categories, you would be dealing with 80% of that 45,000 number. So it's a really large group. Um, the other really notable thing here is there is a staggering correlation between domestic and family violence and all the other forms of gun violence, right? It really is one of the root causes of all the other forms. And so um, that is something that's important to think about whenever we're creating policy. Gun violence in cities or city gun violence is the sort of umbrella of things that we think of kind of popularly, you know, get in a way, I guess, of street violence. So um, tends to happen in mid to large size cities, tends to happen in highly disinvested neighborhoods where there's been sort of chronic racism, chronic disinvestment, and there's a lack of opportunities, a lack of infrastructure. There might be drug trafficking, there might be gun trafficking, um, but it's generally clustered. And um, it's something we'll talk about more. We certainly see it in Albuquerque. Mass shootings are the most familiar thing, I think, on this list of um, gun violence categories. We all seem to know a lot about them, unfortunately, especially since um, Buffalo, Uvalde, and Highland Park all happening in the past two months, I think. So these are way heavily on our mind, and they're very traumatizing for the entire population. Um, the press likes to pay a lot of attention to gun violence in cities and mass shootings, they mostly ignore the other categories, unfortunately. You cannot assume that the average American person knows a lot about gun violence just by 
paying attention to journalism of any kind um, because it is so highly selective. And I would say the same is actually true of social media. Um, people really pay attention to outrage and to fear and to trauma. And it's not that those things are not super important, but there's a lot of trauma and there's a lot of um, death in these other categories too, suicide, domestic violence. Shootings by police have been increasing since the mid nineties. And we'll talk a lot about that or, or somewhat about that. It functions in terms of reform, in terms of fixing it, it functions very differently than these other things, unfortunately. And so in, in a way it's harder. Extremism, hate and white supremacy. So I guess the examples of this I would give would be um, uh, the January 6th uh, insurrection. And um, you could certainly classify like the Charleston shooting as um, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. Those are generally just classified as mass shootings, but obviously they also have extremism and, and hate features. I would say the Onyate um, protest shooting that happened um, two years ago um, was certainly that because of the presence of open carry folks who were basically pretending to function as, as law enforcement when really they were a hate group. Um, unintentional shootings is a category, it's the smallest one. That is really about child access more than anything. It's generally about um, minors, especially young children, getting a hold of a loaded gun that's in the sofa cushions and is improperly stored and accidentally shooting themselves, shooting a family member or a neighbor per se. So US gun violence is really a, a lot of multiple issues that um, are rolled into one and manifest in this really deadly way. And the thing to know about it is that each of these categories has its own set of root causes that become completely lethal when you've got easy firearm access the way we have in the United States. And the reason we've had such easy access is because the NRA wrote our gun laws. They put together their gun lobby in the mid seventies. It was all of their gun uh, manufacturers, still is. And they're in the business of selling guns. So they wanted there to be as few regulations as possible. New Mexico overall is number fourth in the nation for firearm deaths per capita. That is not good. We are number three in the nation for domestic violence homicide by gun. So domestic violence is an epidemic in New Mexico and uh, we see it showing up a number of ways. And I actually lament the fact that as involved as I am in politics here, I see it getting more ignored more often than not. There are a lot of legislators here who don't even want to acknowledge that it's happening in their, in their districts. New policies can definitely save lives. Um, policies rarely fix all of these different types, right? Most policies are just going to do two or three in terms of their impact in, in saving lives. And so that's something that we always need to be mindful of when we're prioritizing what needs to happen next in a state or federally. So there's a lot of groups out there. There's the CDC. They obviously are a public health agency. So they're very strict in how they use their definitions and count. Um, they don't cover, the CDC cannot study gun violence as a public health threat because of a law passed by the NRA. So they can only sort of tally it in certain ways. Um, then you've got Moms Demand Action in Everytown, which is our parent research entity. They have their own kind of rubric for it. There's Giffords, there's Brady. Um, there's the Department of Justice, the FBI. They're all gonna kind of have their own definitions. Um, and so this is sort of the working model that I used when I was developing my way of explaining gun violence to people, um, but it's going to vary depending on the organization that you're working with. Um, there is one 
sort of standard that everyone uses. And that is for mass shootings. A mass shooting is any shooting where four or more people were killed. That's pretty strict. Um, but all of these other things are a little more fluid. But every day in America, more than 110 people are killed with guns. That's a function of that 45,000 number. That's what it comes down to. Um, for me, the next one is, is uh, feels more real or more like less numbing, I guess. And that is that 58% of American adults right now have either experienced gun violence themselves or love somebody who has. That's a shockingly high number. Um, with respect to suicide, the presence of gun in a home increases the likelihood of death by suicide three times. So 300% higher increase just by the presence of that gun. 17% um, of high school students have seriously considered attempting suicide within the past year. That was a stat that was taken, I think, in 2019 before the pandemic. I would imagine it's gone up because the pandemic has had such an impact on the mental health of, of, of teens. Um, this is what I feel is the most damning of all of these stats, but they're all pretty awful, right? So in 2019, um, firearms were the second cause of death for American kids and teens. They're now the first. So uh, the reason for that is not actually mass shootings, as, as awful as they are. The reason is that suicide has gone up among young kids and um, domestic violence homicide has gone up. And this shows you just how shockingly uh, we have seen growth in firearm suicide among young people. The, the age in the past 10 years that's more than doubled is 10 to 14 with firearms, just with firearms, um, 15 to 24, 40%. That 40% would have stunned me, 114% just, it's just shocking. Um, and this is so much about the availability of guns in our culture. No other country on the planet lives this way. Um, if you look at all of the wealthy countries, uh, you see plenty that do allow gun ownership, but they have much tougher regulations about who can buy, how they're used, how they're stored, and um, what people do in the, in the case of an emergency, right? Like how you manage uh, dangerous people with guns. So our rate of homicide by gun is 26 times higher than other countries. Domestic and family violence, the presence of a gun makes it five times more likely that domestic violence will turn deadly in that home. It doesn't matter who owns it. That's been true since the mid nineties when I was in college. I went to a women's college and they were really great about educating you about women's issues, not surprisingly. And when I heard this stat, I made up my mind in college that I was never gonna have a gun in my home. Um, there are more than uh, almost a million, sorry, women alive today who have either been shot or been shot at by an intimate partner. Um, and a lot of folks think that, you know, this domestic and family violence should only be framed as, as a women's issue, so to speak. There are over a million children in America who have witnessed gun violence, right? And a lot of it is happening in homes. So again, it's just the availability, the prevalence of guns. City gun violence, there is definitely overlap here with these other categories. There's about 127 cities in America, mid-sized to large, where over half of that gun violence is occurring. 
Um, and what tends to drive it more in urban centers are um, disinvested areas where there are chronically underfunded opportunities. Um, it's a lot of Black and Latino men who are paying their lives. With this crisis, it's only a small number of people who are responsible for the actual shooting. We know that over-policing makes the situation worse. And we also know that the solutions for this are not legislative necessarily. Um, there, there are lots of programs called violence intervention and, and prevention programs that actually look at um, violence in these settings as like a contagious disease. It's almost like a social contagion is what they call it. And um, we in Albuquerque have some really interesting programs that are finally growing and gaining traction here. And they do some really amazing work. Um, in spring of 2019, officers in Albuquerque were collecting about 30 guns per week at crime scenes off of um, these types of um, groups. So it's, some of it is gang related, drug trafficking, gun trafficking, um, but more often it's sort of like petty conflicts between street groups um, where they're trying to resolve them with guns and we're seeing the perpetrators and victims get younger and younger. With mass shootings, there's a lot of data here um, that we've seen in the local, in local and national press over the past uh, couple of months. I didn't give you a ton of the data here. I think the, the key learnings from understanding mass shootings in America is that often they're perpetrated by someone who was either le legally prohibited from possessing a firearm, somebody who should not have passed a background check or somehow evaded one and or somebody who displayed war really clear warning signs, right? And we, we hear that a lot once on usually like day two or three after a mass shooting occurs, they start to dig into the history and realize, oh, this guy's father vouched for him when he should not have been able to buy a gun, much less an AR-15. Um, they are often intermingled with acts of domestic violence. There's often either a long history of it in the shooter's background or a recent history of it. Um, and we know that AR-15s and other assault style weapons have become the weapon of choice for folks who are contemplating and planning mass shootings. And that is why we need to focus on assault weapons, even though they're only a tiny percentage of actual gun purchases. Gun violence by police. So about a thousand people a year in the past few years have been killed by police officers in America. 96% of the time, those police officers are using guns. So police violence is gun violence for sure. Um, black people are three times more likely to be victims than white people in these settings. Native people are by far the most likely and they actually don't have great data on this because they're such a small segment of the national population. But I always wanna be sure that we focus on that in New Mexico because they're not a small part of New Mexico's population. Um, this is all about systemic racism, white supremacy, America's gun culture, and the militarization of our police that started in the mid nineties and has just kind of gone unchecked for so long. You are listening to Generation Justice, broadcasting on 89.9 KUNM FM. This evening, we share a presentation on policymaking and gun violence presented by New Mexican Emily De Angelis. Emily studied art history at St. Mary's College of Notre Dame and 
is a member of Moms Demand Action, a grassroots movement of Americans fighting for public safety measures from gun violence. They also aid in passing stronger gun laws and work to close the loopholes that jeopardize the safety of our families. Now, back to our presentation. So, some good news. Um, just recently, President Biden signed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. It is the federal level, obviously. This is the first piece of meaningful gun legislation we have seen pass in Congress in almost 30 years. Um, it is very much against what the NRA wants, and it is very much what Moms Demand Action has been trying to do at the, at the federal level for a long time. But honestly, um, after Sandy Hook, when we didn't see anything happen, we've really been focusing mostly on the states because we know what we're working with in our Senate, and Mitch McConnell has sat on every bill that the House has passed. But there are some good things in here. It's not great, but there's some good things. And I'm going to go through them with you guys just so you understand what's in here. Um, because it's also very instructive about policy making. So disarming domestic abusers, it expands the prohibition of abusers from buying or possessing guns to include those who abuse dating partners. So there's a lot in there to like unpack. Um, right now, federal law says that if you are a domestic abuser who has been convicted, you're not allowed to own guns. The problem with that is it's up to the states to enforce it. So it's often not enforced in many states. It's enforced in our state because we have that domestic violence relinquishment law that we pass, which actually requires the relinquishment of a gun by a domestic abuser or group of guns. And there's a specific path for how that happens. But there's been this thing called the boyfriend loophole for all these years. Um, and that has always said the only people who were restricted were people who were actually married to the person that they abused. Well, guess what the vast majority of um, domestic abuse actually happens with dating partners, not with spouses or former spouses. So this closes that loophole. So that's good. Enhancing background checks for buyers under 21. This tries to get at mass shooters who tend to be fairly young, right? Establishing an enhanced process up to a, a three-day investigative period. The, advanced, the enhanced process goes through more data on the background for the individual. So hopefully they're more likely to catch things. Uh, the three-day waiting period or investigative period is really critical because it's like a cooling off period. Um, often mass shooters are really angry or upset about a particular thing when they go out to perpetrate the shooting and forcing them to wait is, is good. Supporting states with red flag laws. So we have one, there's $750 million going to states that already have them to support crisis intervention and implementation. Red flag laws are proactive. So the community needs to know they exist in order for them to do the work they're supposed to do. And you have to educate your population about them. So right now, like Moms Demand Action and a few other groups have these sort of community education programs that they run for free because they're, they wanna do it. But if you have some funding to help get the word out, that really helps a lot. Clarifying who must run a background check. There were some shady um, federal firearms license holders who um, wouldn't renew their, their licensing and would sell anyway to help their buyers evade background checks. And this uh, closes that gap up so that it's really specific about who has to do what. 
cracking down on gun trafficking, always a good idea. This um, deals with interstate gun trafficking buying. When I lived in Chicago, um, a good friend of mine worked for the ATF and um, did a study and found that the vast majority of guns that were on the streets in Chicago were actually not coming from like some underground black market. They were coming from Indiana and Wisconsin because those state lines are 20 minutes away and those gun shops are you know, not very regulated. So this allows a much stricter standard for interstate gun trafficking across state lines. It also helps prevent straw purchases. A straw purchase is like when I ask a friend to buy a gun for me because their record's clean and mine is not. It's a straw purchase. Funding community violence intervention. It's more of those programs that we'll talk about. It's um, community-based, evidence-backed, street outreach, public health approach. Mental health services in schools for children and families. Um, telehealth, which is great. Investing in community crisis intervention and also school safety along the same lines. So the solutions we need at the federal level, um, this is always debatable and up for opinion, but this is my, my opinion after working on it for a while. Um, we need to see federal universal background checks for every single gun sale. And we need to close the private sale loophole. The private sale loophole exists. It was always there, right? So if, um, if I go to a Calibers type store or Cabela's and buy a gun there, whether it's a rifle or whatever, I would have to submit to a background check they're a federally licensed dealer, that's what they have to do. But if I were to buy a gun from my friend who lives up the street and I live in a city or a state um, that doesn't have universal background checks, I don't need to submit to a background check. I can just go tell my friend, hey, here's $500, give me the gun. And they gave me the gun. And this happens all over the United States. It's the private sale loophole. Ever since the internet became a thing, it's massive. And it's really even hard to measure how massive it is, right? Because they're private sales. So we've passed this in the state of New Mexico. We need to pass it at the federal level. Um, it will make a big difference. And we know that because of the number of people who don't pass background checks, right? There are people who actually go and try to get one and they fail. So we know at least that many people are out there trying to get guns legally who shouldn't have them. Um, and this is one of those things that hits all the different um, categories, except for police. Banning assault weapons in high capacity magazines that reduces mass shootings. Passing a national red flag law that helps reduce mass shootings, school shootings in particular, domestic and family shootings and suicide. And we'll go through a little more about what those look like. Um, at the state level, there's a lot we can do more beyond what we've already done. Um, the first thing is definitely a safe storage law. We've already tried to pass it twice and um, the past two sessions didn't work out well. The first time they didn't even wanna talk about it. The second time um, they wanted to pass it, but there were some problems with the bill and we need to go back and fix them. I'll talk about how those work, but they reduce school shootings in particular, suicide, domestic and family shootings and unintentional shootings, banning assault weapons in high capacity magazines, um, requiring the alert of law enforcement whenever someone tries to buy a gun by submitting to a background check and fails it, right? So if you have someone who tried and failed, <laughs> my son is 12 and he read this and he was like, well, duh. <laughs> yeah. um, this reduces deaths across nearly all the categories by stopping someone from pursuing an illegal or a private sale, depending on if private sales are legal where they live. Um, 
we know that when people try to buy and they get declined, if they are, if their intent is really deadly, they tend to get really angry and are especially dangerous in the, the five days after a decline. Um, so that's something that we definitely would love to see happen. I also cannot for life me figure out why conservatives are against, against that one. Banning open carry. Um, New Mexico is an open carry state, believe it or not. Some of you might live in, in areas where um, open carry is common. It's more common in the rural parts of the state. Um, it's common at the roundhouse, which is bizarre. Um, this is about armed extremism, intimidation, election violence, protest violence, hate crimes. Um, banning open carry is, it's a tough road in New Mexico, I think, but I also do think we could see it happen. And then continue to expand the violence intervention and prevention programs, which is aimed at the city gun violence. I, I would love to see it happen in Las Cruces um, for sure, in addition to Albuquerque. So I'll just explain briefly how background check laws work. Um, there's a thing called the NICS system. It stands for the National Instant Check System. It's a FBI run database that checks um, your criminal background for a few different, it's sort of like, there's like a list of things that they're looking for in terms of dangerous history. Um, and that would happen prior to every single sale, no matter how it occurs, including private sales. When we've implemented it for private sales as we have in New Mexico, all that happens is like, if, if, my fr if I'm selling my friend a gun, my friend has to go to a federally licensed dealer to get an approved background check from the NICS system that's actually like printed on a piece of paper, right? And bring it to me and then I'm legally able to sell that person the gun. And then we both have to document that transaction. And then if that gun shows up in a crime, if I didn't uh, verify a, a, an approved background check, we're both liable for, um, for, for criminal charges for not upholding the background check law. Um, a federal law would basically work the same way. Red flag laws. So these are designed to de-escalate potential emergencies or emergency situations. If a person is considering harming themselves, others, family members, um, someone in the community or law enforcement can flag them by asking the court to issue an extreme risk protection order, which is a lot like a protection order for um, victims of, of domestic violence, for example. And that would prevent them from accessing their guns for a temporary period of time. Um, there's a substantial due process protections. The reason this is so controversial among um, conservatives especially is because it is about relinquishment. It's about taking someone's guns away from them. But if somebody is saying, I am going to go to my high school and kill everybody um, and has the means and ability to do so, we want something in place for us to be able to flag them. Um, the New Mexico law is written so that those firearms can either be stored with a federally licensed dealer or with law enforcement. And um, so far, I think we've had about three of these. Um, it's the type of law that you have to educate the, the, the population about so that they know to use it. And I should state, when we wrote our law, we made sure that our district attorneys can also do this because there are some parts of the state where our sheriffs are very much against any type of gun regulation and would not uphold the law and would not do it. And they were very clear with us when we told them that we wanted to pass it. 
Um, safe storage laws require all gun owners to store responsibly at home or in their vehicle. So unfortunately, this is a really big problem in New Mexico. There's a very casual attitude among gun owners about what constitutes re um, responsible storage, even among Democrats who are really on our side for gun safety. A lot of them said there were some um, representatives in the House who said to me, you mean keeping a loaded gun in my nightstand isn't safe storage? I said, it is not safe storage. Um, safe storage, it's the gun is locked, it is unloaded, and the ammo is kept separate. Um, there's lots of ways, affordable, all the way up to fancy, to store your gun responsibly and to be able to access it pretty quickly if you want to. But the main thing that we're looking for here is that a child or teen or somebody who does not own the gun cannot access it, right? And so these store safe storage laws, if that gun shows up in a shooting or a crime um, that's perpetrated by someone other than the owner in this case, the owner is also held accountable for not controlling access. And this is something that we actually see a whole bunch in New Mexico. And right now our DAs are using child neglect laws to try to, to prosecute it, but it's a stretch. So what I learned about how to advocate and win on, on gun violence and gun safety, um, protesting and social media are really just the beginning. Um, you can't rely on it to pass safer gun laws. Um, number one, we have to decide if we're participating in gun violence intervention prevention um, and trying to change laws. How are you going to be visible to your lawmakers, your candidates, and your community on this issue? Um, as a group, one of the most powerful things you can do is, is form a group name, find a colored t-shirt that you like, and wear it very consistently for visibility. And that is something that you're seeing lots and lots of political groups doing at the Roundhouse if you go. Um, they all have a shirt, right? And that's so that they're visible. And I would encourage you if you're serious about forming a group to do this, to try to pick a bold color, pick a bold name and make sure that you're using it very consistently because so much of this work is about visibility and the fact that there is a like a really growing consensus of really growing movement of people who are behind it. And if you don't have that or you don't want to have that, you can join or partner with groups that do, right? So Moms Demand Action has Students Demand Action, there's March for Our Lives, there's Giffords, there's the Brady Campaign. Um, there's lots of local groups that are wonderful to join and, and to be part of. And so you can do that collectively. The second thing you have to do is make sure we have a gun sense majority in the chambers where you want these laws passed, right? If you don't have elected leaders who agree with you, you're shouting into the void, right? They're just gonna ignore you. So you have to be part of the election cycle. You have to be part of the elections process and you don't have to vote to do that. You can work on campaigns and they will love you. Trust me, I've been a candidate. I had a 15 year old girl who knocked on 500 doors for me because she agreed with me about gun violence. So you can have a huge impact. And because you're young, people really love to see you show up in this process and you meet your community and it's kind of great because you build so many different bonds. Communicate directly with your elected, elected officials about these laws and be focused and strategic and relentless about the priorities that you've decided to pursue. So how we made elections magic happen from April to November is really the time frame we're talking about with Moms Demand Action. We put together an elections team. Um, you can find those gun sense candidates either at gunsensevoter.org is the website that Moms Demand Action uses for the folks that we um, give our distinction and endorse. But Brady United and Giffords also does. 
Um, you can sign up your group to do door knocks on Saturdays. They do them all week, but Saturdays is like always the crazy time for, for door knocking. And it's the most powerful way to connect with voters. It matters the most in local races, but it still matters in all races. So um, once you figure out which of the candidates you want to help win, um, you can go door knocking for them and you get really good at talking about this um, with, with people as they answer the door, right? There's also phone banking and text banking, which is another great way to help out. Um, be sure you're talking to the candidates your dang self, right? Like the opportunities that we have in New Mexico to really know our elected leaders and our candidates is tremendous. Like we can have relationships with them um, and really get to know them because that's the kind of tightly networked state that we are. Um, so make sure that you're talking to them multiple times and tell them your top two priorities for the type of laws you would like to see passed and ask where they stand on those laws. Um, if they're already, you know, folks that we've endorsed um, with a gun sense distinction, um, they agree with you generally, but don't assume that they're as educated as even this PowerPoint presentation, because a lot of candidates are not. Attend their town halls, attend their meet and greets, um, show up at their parades, wear your shirts together. You know, the, the Moms Demand Action Group, we always kind of travel in packs of like five, eight, ten because we get noticed that way and um, the candidates and elected officials really see that we care and that we're showing up continually and that we're, we're paying attention. Um, and then you can document all of this stuff on social media with selfies, photos with um, elected officials, give them a shout out, thank them for making gun violence prevention part of the conversation and post it on social media. Twitter's the, the, the biggest place to do it. This is a typical meeting of Moms Demand Action. We met with Howie um, Morales. He's the Lieutenant Governor, so he's also the head of our Senate. And this was um, right as we were about to pass the red flag law. And Howie was, is an educator. So he, this issue is like really central for him. He cares about it super deeply. So basic um, advice about communicating with lawmakers when you talk to them in person, for those who are on your side, you wanna meet them, you wanna thank them, and you wanna ask their help for convincing more or ask for their help in a special way to get things done, right? They're always going to be willing. For those who are on the fence, those are your golden people. Those are the people you need to spend the most time with. They're winnable, right? They're your swing votes. They're the people who ultimately can get a law passed. For those who are completely opposed to you, they have an A-plus rating from the NRA. Bill Ream, former law enforcement, always loves his guns, you know, has had a lock on that district on the north side of Albuquerque for so many years. Skip him. You don't really need to waste your time there, right? If you focus on the other two, you can make change happen. It's just frustrating. <laughs> um, Getting a meeting with elected officials is really easy, even if you can't vote, especially in New Mexico. You can request a meeting with your elected official at any point. Um, go as a group, anywhere from four to 20 people is fantastic. Prepare your talking points in advance and give everybody a little peace so that everybody can talk at some point. Um, tell them why gun violence matters to you and be specific about the specific types of gun violence that worry you, concern you, keep you up at night. Um, survivor and personal stories are the most powerful and that's where to lead the meeting with. Um, survivors need to be taken good care of. If you're a survivor yourself or you're with somebody who has had real trauma with gun violence, you wanna be really careful that every time they tell their story, it's on their terms and that you're taking good care of them. We have some elected officials who are jerks if, when you share their story 
and don't be afraid to just pull the plug and be like, you know what? Nope. <laughs> um, we've had to do that a couple times, unfortunately, but most of the time they're there to listen and it does really make a huge difference. Tell them your top priorities for gun reform, which laws, which one or two laws will make the biggest difference to you and why. And then post photos of the meeting, before the meeting, after the meeting, during the meeting, whatever, on Twitter and thank the elected official for meeting with you. If you just get their staff, that's okay. Meet with their staff and do the same thing. These are some examples of ways to use social media. David Hogg is one of the survivors of the Parkland shooting in Florida. He's been super active, um, really active, especially on social media. So this is a good example of a meeting photo of the March for Our Lives folks with one of the elected officials that helped pass that federal package that we went through. Um, so he's, they probably posted this right after the meeting happened and they posted it again once the, the victory came through to say thank you. Um, on the right is just an example of like more of a casual interaction. So Representative Melanie Stansberry is, is a longtime uh, friend and supporter of Moms Demand Action. She went during her session on the floor when she um, presided over the package <clears throat> for um, it was the beginning of that, that Safer Communities Act. She posted this and I just gave her a shout out and said, New Mexico is proud of you. It's simple. Um, the hashtags and gun violence, there's a whole list of them um, that March for Our Lives and Moms Demand Action, every town we all use. Um, you can just piggyback onto those and be part of that. City gun violence, whole different thing, not legislative. The, the um, solutions here are much more about um, the types of programs that, that can really intervene and, and prevent gun violence. We've got sort of like social service agencies, both with the city and nonprofit that are expanding these. The ones that you can do though, without being part of that sort of like professional group of people um, are crime prevention through environmental design. So basically how the city looks and feels influences the level of violence wherever you live. Um, youth mentoring is another part of this. That's something you can get involved with. Um, you can learn more about um, violence intervention and prevention programs at cureviolence.org. They have a great website where you can watch videos about how they really look at, at violence as a social contagion in um, some city environments. Um, and SEPTED is the shorthand for crime prevention through environmental design. You can create a volunteer squad for the Albuquerque Parks program. You just literally go clean up the parks because there's proof, there's data, that beautiful parks with trees that people can be proud of actually reduce violence. Um, you can adopt a park, you can do tree plantings, anything that improves the, the feeling of the neighborhood, make it better lit, make it more conducive to pedestrian activity. Those are all natural ways um, that human beings interact with each other in positive ways and that reduces gun violence. Thank you, Emily de Angelis, for sharing this important and outstanding presentation with all of us. I learned about not only the impacts of gun violence on our community, but so much more about policymaking and gun laws that I wasn't aware of before. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and wisdom with all of us. COVID-19 cases have been significantly increasing. It is so important to do the right thing to keep you and others safe. In recent weeks, BA5 a variant of COVID-19 has emerged and is increasingly prevalent all over the U.S., including New Mexico. 
Even if you have just had COVID-19 in the past three weeks, you can still get infected with BA5. Please keep yourself and others safe and healthy. Here's what you can do. Please wear a mask, get vaccinated, boosted, and make sure you're following social distancing protocols at all times. Are you in need of a booster shot? The FDA and CDC authorized a fourth Pfizer and Moderna dose for people ages 50 and older. Also, according to the FDA and CDC, young children ages 6 months through 4 years old are now eligible to receive a COVID-19 vaccination. So, if you or someone you know is in need of a vaccination or booster shot, please visit vaccinenm.org. That's vaccinenm.org and schedule your appointment. The pandemic is not over. Please follow these guidelines and protect yourself and others from the spread of COVID-19. We hope you enjoyed this hour of community action. We'd like to thank our guest, Emily de Angelis from Moms Demand Action for sharing her wisdom on policy and gun violence in New Mexico. Tonight's Hour of Radio was produced by Roberta Rael and Barbara Ramirez with production assistance from Sunandita Santanam and myself, Madhumita Santanam. And thank you to our fellows, Ariana Cordova and Scarlett Vigil for introducing our guest, Emily de Angelis. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We cannot do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We're also active on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and follow our playlists on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Cone Alma Health Foundation, NMDOH Better Together, and, of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. Our last song of the night includes Gone Too Soon by Caleb Minter. I am Madhumita Santanam. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Stay safe and have a great night. I don't want to question.